0: 2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. the rate that's of great concern. Uh, what I'll do you know. think that rate does to you? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act, but I say The will to act is itself a renewable resource.
1: Hey guys, it's Cree here again and I'm taking you with me on the road to COP25, which is fast approaching to take place in Madrid. I'd like to acknowledge that today's episode is being recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. As I'm getting prepared to go to the COP, I'm learning a lot about the UNFCCC itself, the significance of the COP amongst the international climate regime and all the different participants involved. Whilst it's broadly accepted that representatives from the governments of nation states are the ones who are involved in formal negotiations, they aren't the only ones with important roles at the COP. Perhaps it could be said that governmental ambassadors are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to those representing nation states. Today I'm here with Jimmy Nails to discuss the role of non-governmental organisations or NGOs at the UN COP25. Jimmy and I have been mates since we met at the Australian Marine Conservation Society years ago. Himself and other members of the Society have shared so much with me over the past six years about marine conservation and threats faced by Australia's marine ecosystems. My time with AMCS has played a big part in where I've ended up today. And for that, I'm so grateful for the countless hours we've spent campaigning together. Up until a few months ago, Jimmy was an enormous part of AMCS as a marine campaigner and will remain so for the foreseeable future. Today, we're here on the eve of one of his big adventures to Tasmania, which I'm sure we'll hear more about later. So, Jimmy, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me and have a chat. So, the ocean for you. What is it? Yes. You spend a lot of time working towards preserving the ocean and I'd love to hear more about what drives you to dedicate so much time um, and so much of yourself towards marine conservation.
2: Cool. Well, I think it's like two-pronged. It starts from not being able to handle the Victorian summer. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) so I would spend my summers inside or at the coast, basically. And so we were... Pretty fortunate. growing up we we're able to go to the down the beach like either the locally morning peninsula or you know the tassie where i'm heading and so we we're always by the coast and i think um that was lucky and i was able to like my appreciation just continued to grow like mm. as i would get older i'll learn more about what ecosystems were or you know how unique the southern coastline of australia in particular is um and that I guess got to that sort of threshold right and then i fell over that and i was like okay i have to just dedicate my life to this <laughs> yeah. um yeah so my sister lived down in Warrnambool and i lived down there too and i was rangering for a while mm. like in Gration road and yeah. Warrnambool and stuff so yeah um and i think the more i learned about it, and the more i sort of i guess fell in love with the coast and the marine environment and the more i then started to discover the threats i guess mm. and I wouldn't obviously talk about those, but yes, when I really started to appreciate what threats are facing our marine environment, I was like, okay, advocacy needs to Mm. be my way, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was a similar thing with me, was that you kind of get to a point and you can't ignore what you're seeing Mm. and what you're seeing change in marine environments. It's quite confronting at times, so...
2: Yeah, big time. Mm. I know, like, it's in the news right now, but there's been a... Um, the short-tailed shear waters and they are been sort of like ha- taken quite a hit, a population-wise, like population-wise, uh, quite a lot washing up there. And and so, we're still trying to figure out what's going on with those specifically. Mm. Um, but that was also happening when I was in Warrnambool in 2013-2014, mm-hmm. and that was the same sort of like mother's years where there's just like they got massively hit. Mm. Um, and As well, at the same time, you've got, like, you know, plastics washing up. Mm. And, again, the short-haired shearwaters and, like, Lord Howe and stuff getting hammered from plastics. So, um, yeah, when you sort of really realise, yeah, it's Mm. it's sucked in that hole of... Yeah, yeah. So you're going back now? No. (laughs) Yeah,
1: cool. So during your time working with AMCS, what were your main focuses?
2: Uh, My main focus was... was, I was a campaigner, Mm -hmm. um and I work nationally um, out of Brisbane, Melbourne and Darwin different times, mm-hmm. um, but I focus on marine parks and plastic pollution principally. A mm-hmm. uh, bit of time with the reef team as well. Mm-hmm. Um, volunteering with the reef team on weekends as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Um, but no, so marine parks, so I guess just like national parks on land, national parks on water, right? Mm-hmm. And. Uh, those campaigns were state territory and nationally focused mm-hmm. and the main one was a uh, federal or national network of marine sanctuaries mm-hmm. so um, for those listening I guess but um, 2012 Australia created the largest network of marine parks and mm-hmm. uh, marine protected area sorry marine protected areas and then with the change of government in 2013 they were suspended um, and went under a review um, and then in 2018 those cutbacks were instigated i guess is the right word but they were Mm. yeah basically the cutbacks occurred and um so we were campaigning against that i guess -hmm. yeah yeah -hmm. and then plastic pollution as well so um helping AMTS grow our plastics campaign and um i guess that was over the last yeah four five years um and that's national and um again might delve into that in more detail but yeah um principally focusing on single-use plastics and yeah getting some federal movement on mm-hmm. stopping plastics from being in our ocean mm-hmm.
1: yeah. yeah definitely a problem that it's not going away anytime soon so
2: no and, and the plastics is an interesting space right like in that um and i mean even though D- david atmar and talks about this how it was there the issue of plastic pollution for like a few decades, Mm. Um, but really in the last five years it seems to have sort of exploded Mm. um, into, you know, both like a community sort of awareness around it and then um, in some parts of the world more than others, of course, but government action Mm. in in regards to stopping plastics from getting into our oceans or existing at all. And um, it's been a really interesting space um, to be really focusing on it for the last yeah seven or eight years i guess and um uh trying to thought. oh yeah oh yeah but yeah no plastics is mm. well, it's, it's a unique sort of space i guess mm. yeah
1: yeah yeah i did a lot of um beach cleans when i was working in malaysia last yeah year. and that was like you know just huge like more plastic than you could ever imagine mm. just covering beaches and not even only the beaches it was like you know, 10, 20 meters into the jungle mm. behind mm. where the water was coming up to. So during the monsoon season, like waves of plastic were just hitting the beaches yeah. and left there until, um, you know, people could access that point again. Mm. And we spent months cleaning different beaches around these islands.
3: Yeah.
1: I remember one beach clean, we got nine over 900 plastic bottles in an hour. Gosh. Yeah, well. One hour and it's like, you know, you're not even standing on the ground in, mm. in these pictures. It's like you're standing on layers and layers and layers of rubbish and um yeah. It's coming from all over the place. Like mm. the plastic bottles we picked up were from Vietnam. Yeah. Malaysia. So it's I think, yeah, this um issue of plastics, like it's really hard to address because once it's in the ocean it doesn't belong to any one or any country anymore like it's in the currents there's no borders in the ocean yeah and then somebody else ends up having to deal with it or it it Mm. ends up impacting marine life so
2: yeah and that's something that's been really um to our attention over the last this year Mm. is that um you know Australia so the majority of plastic pollution within our waters it comes from Australia and um you know it's pretty um, a firm fact through CSIRO but what's interesting is that those so you mentioned malaysia yeah and Mm. so like um malaysia indonesia thailand philippines and likes it sort of comes to light that a lot of um the plastic pollution is actually being shipped there from other countries right Mm. and so in australia we people are using these plastic items whatever they might be and sometimes with really good intentions they think they're being recycled or they think they're being disposed of quote unquote appropriately. Mm. And yet then the people who are dealing with that plastic pollution are just sending it overseas mm. um, selling it for dirt cheap. Mm. And so they're sending it to places that don't have the facilities to handle their own mm. rubbish. And mm. now they're getting copping hours as well. Yeah. And it's, um, it's quite a fire in Sister's belly as it were. I, we just found that was a pretty disgusting legacy that yeah, ultimately, the governments are letting happening right, um, and when people in plastic pollution, but when people act and they're thinking they're acting in the appropriate way, but then they're actually being let down by those that are handling the pollution. So um, it was there was some really good reporting probably mid this year that was like bringing that to light, mm-hmm. and um, and yeah, I think it's the more people know that the better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it really does help to um, turn the light back onto state, territory and federal governments and, like, how they're allowing this to be shipped overseas. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, especially when um, certain politicians try and blame it on overseas, right? Mm. You know, it's not our problem, it's overseas's problem, but we're contributing massively to it. So, you know, deal with your own backyard first before you start blaming other people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah big challenges ahead. Mm. But I guess I wanted to ask like what was the best or what has been the best part about working in the environmental space?
2: Uh, meeting awesome volunteers like you create. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: um
2: you. <laughs> No hundred percent it's people, right? Yeah. I think um, my time with MCS um, who MCS people listening at home, I miss you deadly and madly. <laughs> um, no, no, I I've worked in different capacities, I guess, like NGO, so MCS, um, state government, so Victorian government, as a ranger, private businesses, land, sort of management and ecology. Um, you could say almost like a, my personal business, even though it's not, but making tracks, <laughs> you yeah. know, mm. one day, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but uh, so so looking at environmental sort of work, movement conservation from different angles but um yeah ultimately the, the best part of that is being able to facilitate um environmental protection with uh communities and you know that could be from um you know helping my dad revege veg the front yard mm. so like see how they create like all of those plants the native plants like they were planted over like four to five years yeah. and so like you're know, working with dad on how do we you know slightly restore and otherwise like a paddock that was kind of useless yeah. and so I like got on various localized level to yeah mcs and sort of shaping the rhetoric around how we talk about and deal with single-use plastics for example mm. so it's quite a broad scope but ultimately it's working with people yeah. and you know i had a wicked team at mcs and um and other places I've worked, of course. But, yeah, AIMSYS was grand. And so to go to work every day with those folk was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the folk make it. And I think that's right with most businesses. Mm. Most places you work, right? You, yeah. You connect with people around you and that's what you... Yeah. That's what you love,
1: yeah. Yeah, and I think it's, like, it's very important when we're dealing with these pretty heavy environmental issues to have a good support network that you're working mm. with because... There are days when you can just feel so deflated and let down and frustrated that, you know, it's, at times it can feel like nothing's moving, nothing's changing mm-hmm. and everything, you know, the climate is just like rapidly and unrelentlessly changing around us. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to be, yeah, surrounded by people and I think that's, you know, a lot to do with what I love about, being in the environmental space as well it's the connections that you form are very deep and um long lasting
2: Mm. yeah it must be like when you're well you are like emotionally invested right Mm. and when when someone is emotionally invested in something and then you find someone else who is the same like it's yeah you make those emotional connections yeah Yeah. um not quite the same as going buying a newspaper from local shops like Mm. it's yeah you're talking about <laughs> some serious environmental issues yeah, yeah actually
1: yeah. like that was um something that my friends like I've got an awesome group of friends at uni who um we kind of giggle giggled at ourselves the other day because we'd gone to the pub and then you know everyone's kind of celebrating after semester exams and whatnot mm-hmm. and for whatever reason well i know the reason but we always kind of you know get talking about environmental issues and then it just gets darker and darker and then we're like in the corner of the pub being like guys none of us should have children like (laughs) this is this is the only thing that's going to be fair for the next generation and then yeah you kind of have to pull yourself back from that and realize okay like Mm. we're in a pub celebrating yeah 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 uh, yeah. um... (laughs) that's right like
2: where those support networks can hopefully drag you out of those situations yeah yeah yeah
1: Yeah, and so i guess on that note um what has been challenging for you working in the environmental space
2: well as you mentioned i'm not working anymore (laughs) (laughs) so i think Uh, well I've taken like a time away from my career and yeah Mm. because it's pretty intense right now Mm. and so working in federal politics in particular and then going through like a pretty hectic federal election and then not seeing the best policy outcomes for our environment Mm. out of that election was kind of um, was pretty tough and then I guess just working for five years or whatever in the campaigning space mm. it's pretty full on so mm. um but yeah it ties back to what we said anyways like about like when you're emotionally invested in something mm. you get emotionally tired yeah so, definitely so yeah and I, to be fair like uh spoken with a lot of folk in mcs but other ngos and the likes it's like um emotionally invested and you do get drained and tired and burnt out mm. if you will but it's nice when it has been nice for myself but for so my peers to um, respect taking time out yeah. and that was sort of tough for me because I was like the climate crisis is ridiculous and you know mm. I'm going to Tassie but Tassie was burning down 12 months ago and mm. that just threw me massively mm. um, in large parts of you know temperate rainforests that don't burn and so um and not to mention other things but like that's probably not an i think that's a natural thing for humans to bear Mm. and then but also like taking a step back is quite difficult Mm. because you know what's going on right so i think um despite how tough it's been it's also great having peers that say yes take time and look after yourself Mm. and i guess it could be applied to anyone right mm. yeah mm. um and i think we chat about later but like with folk individuals and communities and what they can do Yeah. like actually i'll t- talk about that later mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that's toughest
1: yeah yeah no it is tough and um yeah thank you for sharing because i think that is like really so important for everybody to acknowledge that yeah the more you know about these issues and the more you kind of realize how intertwined everything is all these systems interacting with each other mm. and reaching tipping points like it's it is a lot to bear and you know when you start losing sleep at night mm. on something that you're working day in day out on and yeah. it still feels like nothing's changing it can be just yeah
2: yeah you know, and, and- and how long can one maintain that energy and and that's different for everyone right Mm. some people can do it for weeks months years whatever it might be but Mm. knowing your Mm. i guess your threshold Mm -hmm. and when you've gone past that it's taking that time out to chill out hey dad dad just walk in we can (laughs) we can edit that
1: out cool so i guess i'd love to hear about the roles that ngos play in the international climate regime Mm -hmm. um Do you know much about that and has this kind of shifted recently
2: i guess to preface Mm -hmm. uh that i haven't directly worked in the international ngo space that said um does have a myriad of involvements with international committees and so world heritage committee and Mm -hmm. i'm not actually sure if we're directly involved with cop this year i i couldn't find that out um Oh, they are. I'm
1: not 100% sure, okay. but I can wear my badge.
2: Okay, yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not too sure on that, but um, and obviously like international whaling committees and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, have uh, lengthy chats with folks that have participated in those events. My understanding is that their NGO role in the international space is is very similar to what our role is or what NGO's roles is, is in an, a national state or territory base or sort of um, aspect in that the contemporary NGO is there to call out the government when the government isn't telling the complete truth. Mm-hmm. I think it's a nice way of putting it. And so I have worked on campaigns through AMCS and others where things had occurred that you know the government didn't tell the entire truth. Um, or chose select facts that would support their argument. But um, overall, not um, they weren't as strong or they weren't strong at all f- um, when it comes to marine conservation. That seems to be the role in Australia and I'm sure in other countries as well, depending on the government at the time, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then on an international level, so participating in COP, I guess it's the same. So NGOs go along and government... Represent these bureaucrats and likes go along, and so it's ensuring that there is that independent voice that um, check governments. And that's the beauty of living in and participating in democracy: is that mm-hmm. you can, and and you can have those
1: mm-hmm.
2: bodies like NGOs. No. So,
1: how has the role of in- NGOs uh, in this space kind of shifted right. recently? Do you think?
2: Yeah, I don't know
1: Mm.
2: I suppose looking at sort of international space and specifically with climate and global warming and how it's sort of like exponentially getting worse almost maybe not exponentially specifically but it is getting worse and it's general populace is more and more on board and wanting serious action in the space Mm. and not all governments around the world are acting with that sort of like like honestly, in mind, like yeah. there's, there's clearly differences between how government A is going about and government B and C and D. Mm. And so, with the NGOs, some very strong science on their side. Mm. What was it the other day? Eleven thousand scientists signing mm. you know, the climate paper. Like it's there's some serious momentum there from the general populace and from the scientific community. And so, the role of NGOs internationally, I guess, ever important if governments aren't wanting to act mm. appropriately mm. so yeah i mean there's <laughs> always work for ngos to do right it's like it seems that always important and crucial that there's an independent voice
1: mm. yeah and i think that's really um to note at the moment with everything that's happening in chile like this conference was supposed to take place there and because of you know that nation's population standing up for what they believe in saying that the government is not serving them the result I mean okay it's true to say that it's not safe there right now but to cancel the conference because of that because of what the people are you know standing up for what they believe in is like it's truly it's really heartbreaking and um I just wanted to say on that note um if you are unaware of what is currently unfolding in Chile, the kinds of um, violence and silencing that the people of Chile are facing, then I implore you to go and educate yourself. Don't feel bad about not knowing uh, what's going on over there because it's not really being shared amongst the mainstream media. And there's like a lot of political reasoning behind that. So I know that there's some really great organisations here in Australia called Chile Woke Up um, and I've got some really inspiring friends here in Australia who are rallying very hard for the people in Chile and I would really, um, I know that they and everybody in Chile would really just appreciate as much global support as possible for, for the kinds of issues that they're facing. I mean, I feel so lucky and fortunate to still be able to go. You know, the conference got shifted to Madrid just a couple of days later. Yeah. And I think that's a really important perspective to bring because it now means that, you know, people from developing nations or certain countries that need visas to enter into Spain, like they're not going to be represented Mm. at this global conference anymore. And so... Yeah, I think it's just important to you know sit back and check yourself and 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 recognize you know why you're going and what you're standing for. And I'm going with an organisation who's providing some really great opportunities for young people mm-hmm. to have these opportunities in policy and governance. And yeah, no, it's pretty awesome. because
2: like, like, people have been planning for it to be in Chile for what you know a year or mm-hmm. more, and. You know, we're not all made of cash mm. and so the logistical nightmare of putting together a conference yeah. and then at the sort of like 11th hour and 59 minutes it's like, okay we're changing it to another country mm. and for these reasons a mm. very political reason right mm. and then that yeah closed doors on i don't know specifics but it has to have there's people that you know can't afford to get there mm. or and that so they're not able to be represented in a, like a strictly global issue. Yeah. Right. So you want everyone at the table. Yeah. Because it impacts everyone. Yeah. From North Pole to South.
1: Yeah. So. yeah. So I guess I'm going to kind of bring the voice of youth to the table. Mm. But not necessarily just from Australia, you know, I feel really passionate about being able to bring the views of global youth there. Mm. I'm sure there's gonna be back there's going to be a lot of young people there more than ever very loud voices
2: yeah totally it could be amazing
1: (laughs) so this year's cup is being called the blue cup Mm -hmm. Um, so it's got a big focus on marine resources the oceans what's happening in Coastal communities, Mm. everything like that. So, um, what do you think should be like things that are discussed as a priority with regards to marine conservation at the COP this year?
2: So, climate change or global warming and our marine environment. Well, let's look at like Australia to start with, right? So, like 2016, 2017, dual back to back bleaching events on the reef Mm. and massive coral. Um, mortality in 2016 Gulf of hero, you know like hundreds of of mangroves like mangrove die off Mm. flying over the gulf is I flew over the gulf then moving to Darwin but it's just um, you know you're seeing this grey landscape rather than Mm. a wonderful green mangrove thriving landscape Mm. 2010 2011 the seagrass die offs in Shark Bay so like World Heritage again Mm. like 90% of seagrass or something die off. Mm. Giant kelp in Tasmania, you know, like a place where I'm going and like what I, areas that I love to snorkel and or dive, um, giant kelp is gone. I think it's down to like 5% of its range from only a couple of decades ago. And, you know, the the specifics on that I think aren't quite determined. I might be wrong, but there's definite impacts there with like the increase in the strength of the Easter train current. And, that's shifting species, mm. so you've got the species well out of their range, and then when you have an ecological imbalance already, then they, you know, um, habitats aren't as resilient as they could be. Mm. So I guess if we're looking at COP, long-winded answer, if we're looking at <laughs> COP, and so it's a it's the blue COP, right? So they're talking about the oceans and the impacts on oceans and ocean communities, yeah, priorities is it sort of comes back to the same thing so often, right? It's like we know ultimately how to stop it and get away from fossil fuels. But the threats are happening, the impacts are right now happening. Um, So I think it's a... It's a... It's that serious conversation like we have to get rid of fossil fuels. That's what we have to do. That solution is determined. But in the meantime, as we battle that path of which some governments are doing better than others around the globe... Is we have to think of what marine ecosystems going to lose, or what ecosystems are going to take too much of a hit. And there's some serious science in that part in that um, area already, right? Like cold reefs, they're -hmm. becoming pretty hard hit as we've seen. Mm -hmm. So you know that's and like a wonderful metaphor, quote unquote. But yeah, like you're dealing with the environment and ecosystems and. Everything is connected, mm. and so when we're talking about global warming, is it's a very complex discussion when it comes to our environment. Definitely. So, and that's why we need that like serious, rapid, move towards renewable, mm. non fossil fuel energy mm. for one. Yeah. So yeah, and and look, from AMCS's point of view, I'm sure I could speak on their behalf. If I'm not there anymore, but it's, it's seeing all the way around the country. Uh, fantastic marine heritage being hammered, and it's through global warming, but it's the flow and effects mm. um, in those imbalanced ecosystems. So yeah, um, look, the priority is a Cup, Blue Cup is that serious conversation? All about the ocean. It's yeah,
3: just, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. It, it's gnarly though, right? Like yeah. I, I um, me and my mate dived down in Tassie two years back, so like off the uh, the east coast mm. Eagle Hawk neck to be specific. And there was like giant kelp gardens there with like not just living memory within my living memory. Mm. And um and to boot, you know, a population of like the Southern Crayfish I think. Mm. And that's not there anymore. Yeah. And you know like it's it's not a nice no one likes that legacy. No. It's just yeah, it's just, mm. yeah it'd be unfortunate that it this is. is the situation that
1: we're in. Yeah, and I often like, I love taking pictures underwater. I love corals. Like, I'm all about coral I'm a coral nerd. Mm. And fascinating. they are. Um, you could just, you could look at them all day. Mm. You know, recent times, um, you know, that i have been over in Malaysia. I was there last year, and then I came back after the monsoon season eight months later. Mm. And this whole reef had died in that time. Mm. And I actually, um, you know, I have these very very sad before and after pictures of what this reef was like um, when I left and then when I came back and I was working in sea turtle conservation there and you can it's undeniable the the flow-on effects that these changes have on the whole ecosystem right so the reef bleached and that can happen in only the space of a couple of months Hmm. the monsoon hits a really fragile reef it just like picks up all this dead coral and deposits it onto the beach and that then you know throughout the monsoon season meant that the whole beach was washed away mm. and we came back mm-hmm. and we came back after the monsoon and I mean you could see like the sand level of where the these boulders like stick out of the sand and you could see where the beach had just been eroded away
3: yeah.
1: And then at night time, we're waiting for turtles to come up and nest, and they did. They came up, but the beach is just full of coral rubble, and there's, there wasn't much sand left yeah. on the beach whatsoever. And yeah,
2: what do they lay their eggs in then? Right? They, they couldn't. And yeah. there was and there they was... returned to the same spot right? exactly. So, so there's there.
1: Yeah, these these would have been mums who. Had nested about three years ago they have a cycle of nesting once every three years or so Mm. for greens and it was just heartbreaking like um this mum came up like three nights in a row came up onto the beach and would walk around walk around walk around for hours try and dig and Mm. she's just like hitting rocks she's hitting coral there's nowhere for her to go Mm -hmm. and she went back to the sea and then she came back the next night and still had no luck and like it depends on the individual turtle one can be more picky than the other and she was very picky and we don't know what ended up happening with her because Mm -hmm. one night she just didn't come back and so the assumption can be made that she dropped her eggs in the sea Mm -hmm. And like that's you know on this tiny little beach you can just see how this ecosystem is just
2: yeah. yeah and then of course like your sociological like impacts right exactly like...
1: and i i'm you know i really feel and that is the the connection that we we need to make um you know i'm fortunate enough to be able to return to these places and um you know try and use my time to to better these marine environments but this is the reality for that community that really wonderful warm community there in Malaysia who has welcomed me um with open arms time and time again and I am so grateful I am so grateful for that community there in the Pahentian Islands um for allowing me to to come and and be a part be a part of their lives and try and help in some little way. But the fact is that these people live there and they rely on these coastal ecosystems for their livelihoods. And that is just being pillaged in front of them. And they have contributed very little to the climate crisis. Um, And they don't get to just go away in the monsoon and pretend like it's not happening because that's the reality for them and that's not fair hmm. but so i guess um today mm. like where as i said earlier we're on the eve of you um having a pretty big adventure in tassie yes so um Tell me about... And
2: non-global warming related. Yeah. So, that's actually not true. Yeah. <laughs> you can't escape with yeah. James. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. You can never run away. You can't even go to a tiny island and try and forget about it. You no. um, But what... Um, so where are you off to? And, mm-hmm. and tell me about, like, your project. It's called Making Tracks. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about it. And
2: um, Yeah, and actually on that is we can't run away, Right and that's that's like that's a um really important point i think even and we chat about it before right like i've taken time away from work quote-unquote work i'm mm-hmm. still don't have enough time to do everything i want to do mm-hmm. which is great but um yeah you can't run away from these things and i felt that was a big lesson for me in that i wanted to take some space away from like the, the emotions of told but You can't separate yourself from it. So it's... Yeah, you're taking that step back. But still, it's... it's, Yeah, it doesn't stop. Um, Anyways. um, So, yeah, Making Tracks. Making Tracks. Um, uh, In a nutshell, I guess um, Making Tracks would be a platform, I suppose. Like, it's not an organisation. It's not a business or anything yet. But... I set up a few years ago, and it's based around hiking, um, particularly long-distance hiking, like um, spots where you've got to pack a bag and spend a night somewhere um, or more. And But, yeah, it's, it's hiking, and it's all with the effort I put into it, it's around um, increasing folks' understanding that, and then their appreciation for our amazing backyard um it's still incredibly amazing and um and i suppose the overall desire is that through a great understanding through a great acknowledgement of how um special and unique our backyard is uh an increase in that desire to protect it yeah that's and I, I, I suppose the little line i've come up with is that you know for every step of inspiration we receive when we're out hiking we can give one step back in in protecting or conserving or yeah. doing what we can, and mm-hmm. and acknowledging that that's different for everyone, right? Like mm-hmm. not everyone can do uh, the same amount, but we can do something. And so oh yeah, I'm a hiking nut. Mm-hmm. Um, we yeah, we were lucky got growing up like um, we got a little shack in Tassie, but we that was pretty much like a holidays would be going on a hike or hiking Mm um and yeah it just sort of evolved to taking up like not taking up but all my time that's around hiking and and yeah so i have making tracks um yeah i've like put a book together in the past and website and social media all that sort of stuff Mm um but basically um it's just grown into being like a a hiking resource i suppose yeah um and yeah, really centered around conservation and so right now so yeah, despite taking a break from work i still wake up and this is all i do that's yeah. the best <laughs> but love, uh so. oh it's, it's yeah i'm yeah. um, yeah. um, yeah. i i am mm. and it's great and so i yeah i wake up in the morning and i just jump into making tracks and so um yeah, the last two months well I've done over 700k's hiking in the last two couple of months wow. and and yeah I go to Tassie tomorrow and I guess for those playing along at home I'm walking the, the South Coast Track and the Western Arthurs and the Range Frenchman's Cap and mm-hmm. a bunch of other ones mm-hmm. but um, I just love like I love how the pace of hiking and there's nothing else is your own pace Mm. you know like a bike or a car or a plane it's just different pace and you when you're hiking you can stop whenever you want and check out whatever you want and Mm. and um and like a lot of skill sets is like the more you do something the more you can learn it's like i'm always learning and Mm. that's what i love and and uh you know i I can remember when i started you know a big hike would be like an hour Mm. you know an hour and a half two hours and Oh, yeah, whoa, I'm taking lunch with me as well. Now, that was a big hike. And now, like... <laughs> it's
1: kind I'm, of where I'm at. Yeah. It. <laughs> and, it's,
2: and it's, like, literally a journey, yeah? yeah? It's, you know, we're, like, you know, we are telling about Loddig, Yeah. Right. And so Lod-a-Durg, um is a beautiful little state park just outside of Melbourne, um, just under an hour's drive. And, you know, you can go there and walk for half an hour mm. or... I was there the other week and I did a 90k walk through I'm Forest and so far, just a like
3: jump yeah
2: like, and that's you, know, you just yeah. keep walking sometimes
3: yeah
2: um, and so for what like main tracks holds in the future who knows I'd love to just see where it takes me basically mm-hmm. and um, and yeah I'm always talking to people about hiking it is always something you learn but it's always someone something I can share with people yeah. Um and and um it's i've been helping out at the victorian national parks association as well Mm -hmm. um and that's just sort of on my days off Mm -hmm. yeah i come back from being out bush and then just help out there a day or so a week Mm -hmm. no a day or so a week a day a week and then um like they've got some campaigns going on and one of them is their central western forest campaign and so Loderdurg, I mentioned, is a is a state park, and there's one about state forest adjacent to it. And that has been going through a process for over a decade now, where it's been recommended by the Victorian Environmental Assessment Council that it's becomes a national park. And that's um like an independent or I think it's a statutory or independent body of the government that's recommended this and and so through hiking, you know, ultimately, like when you're hiking, you want to walk through the best environment mm-hmm. you can, mm-hmm. um, which in itself poses a, a sort of catch-22 because you're always thriving, like want to get yeah. to the best, but then you can't ignore the you know the environments that have had a, a tougher life, let's yeah. just say. Um, but yeah, the and and Wombat looks like it could be the Wombat the National Park, and mm-hmm. so I've i've been hiking there um a few times over the last month or so a bit of bird watching and stuff too and it's just for me i was like hiking there. oh i can actually help this organization who is trying to protect this Mm. in the long run Mm. and i was out there the other last week i was helping um shannon hurley who's a campaigner there um and the wombat forest care and the likes and the like the work that the little community has done there um Scientific work, so like surveying and um endangered threatened species. It's incredible. There's this is like amazing amazing group. That's done an amazing amount of work, gathered an incredible amount of data, mm. and then gone through it all voluntarily, mm. and built up this really uh, respectable um portfolio of work for that area of the world. Mm. And hopefully, it's turned into a national park because that's what it deserves. Yeah, um, and. I guess stemming back to my work with AMCS and then being a ranger and stuff mm. is that, um, and you probably started me now, because I'm on national parks and I'll go on forever. But <laughs> the the concept of a national park and it all, for me, like it started when I was in the States and they have national parks. And I remember talking to people there and they're like, our oh, national parks are this and they're that. Okay. And they are the pride mm. of this is this is that the best and you know i was like well okay cool and they are awesome areas of the world which i went to like you know like alaska and denali and places which are just spectacular and um i came back home and i'm like oh yeah national parks what's going on here and um and they really are they're like so much to so many different people Mm. but um i think ultimately there's that biological importance of protecting areas yeah and how we go about that um because Australia's evolutionary biological history is really quite unique like yeah. nowhere else can you go walking and find koalas yeah um Definitely. or echidnas. like yeah. they are evolutionary mm. two of a kind in the yeah. entire world and that's pretty special and so that's sort of what our uh, national parks around the country Ideally protects and sort of embodies is mm-hmm. people think of our uh, unique landscapes and seascapes, mm. and they want it protected. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I try and hike outside of national parks as much as I can. But ultimately, like it's gathering photos and stories from those places and turning them into something, and making tracks, and, and yeah. people seem to enjoy it.
1: Oh, <laughs> Yeah. I've been sharing the trail notes around my work, so hopefully we're going to go out for a hike together yeah. on, on your notes. Yeah, maybe not the 90-kilometre version. Down.
2: Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> recommend 90k in three days. It's um, hectic. But yeah. but like, and Victoria's has got spectacular, I mean, such as New Zealand, such as Europe, Asia, you name it, there's spectacular hiking yeah, Uh,
1: but I think it's a cool cool. thing that you're doing, you know, using like your passion and and your passion for photography and writing and hiking all combined to, you know, share that Mm. with the world and and really encourage people to get out there amongst nature, amongst um, yeah, our backyard Mm. we need to understand it, we need to appreciate it we need to spend time there to really you know understand what's at stake here Mm. and you know you're going to do it for some really amazing reasons and i think that yeah people could take a lot from that and Mm. um yeah
2: Yeah, hopefully there's there's a gem or two in there yeah yeah it's it's there's that old saying well maybe not old saying but you know you you protect what you love and you love what you know and you know you're like Mm. you have to be you have to be taught sometimes. Yeah. Even if that's self education mm. and the beauty of the bush or the sea, is mm. that there's always something in the land. Like what do we know about the the oceans, really? Yeah. Like this tiny scaric of information. Exactly. And even that is beyond any one person. Yeah. And and you know, I was thinking about this the other day, like um you know, like sort of more um like the contrasts of, of landscapes. And say if you were just after a nice view mm-hmm. and like you could say oh yeah you've got Uluru and then you've got Wilson's well, Prom okay very different landscapes mm-hmm. thousands of kilometres apart mm-hmm. but I, I feel like the more the more you learn about the intricacies of the yes. environment is you can go from you know King Lake which is just down the road to Loddeg mm. not even you can go King Lake to Warrandyte and you can see differences yeah. in the ecosystems. Yeah. So like um, this sort of stint of hiking I've been doing, like I went from Wilson's Prom to the Great Ocean Walk to then out past Portland on the Great Southwest Walk. Mm-hmm. And that, that was like four weeks, one, then the other, and the other. Mm-hmm. And I even noticed like with the blue wrens, and so they get their plumage, like they get quite vibrant mm-hmm. when it comes to like breeding time. Mm-hmm. And I noticed noticeable differences in the blue wrens between – each oh, of those yeah. and then at the same time like it was four weeks apart but I was going from spot to spot and there's definite differences yeah. and then also the wildflowers so you don't have the same species mm-hmm. in each location you do have crossover but mm-hmm. you don't have the same um they're not all blooming at the same point mm-hmm. and so you know you narrow down to here in Victoria and you're like wow there's a marked difference just yeah. within Victoria and yeah again we've mentioned before but the more you start digging in Mm. that sort of like information hole of the environment is just it's always something to learn and it's like very humbling you know like if you're bored then (laughs) learn something about the environment and then be humbled and be like yeah yeah
1: and i think like another point to be kind of humbled on is you know only recently is knowledge of indigenous australians being Mm. um foregrounded and and really appreciated for what it is and i think that um yeah that is just so important to integrate that into our national australian discourse of you know indigenous australians were here for tens of thousands of years Mm. um, before white colonization happened and the knowledge that was um cu- like cultivated during that time is something that i don't even i can't comprehend and i'm not even going to try to because that's something mm. that's like embedded um within indigenous australians and i think yeah yes yeah,
2: and in the landscape right in seascape, mm. like mm. there's there's this amazing symbiotic relationship or like culture and environment is kind of the same thing yeah yeah and when geez, when you're hiking in some of the best national parks and most intact quote unquote national parks mm. is you can still see impacts of like colonisation yeah. right and yeah. so yeah Lord to going back to that and Lord to Wombat like massive massive logging through there and mining mm. and and yeah, in the southwest logging the old ways logging and there's some incredible photos of before and after and, before, and then after again. And so mm. you have like these ginormous trees and you see them no more, completely bare hillsides and then you have the forest growing back. Yeah. But um, those impacts um, post 1770, mm. in Victoria, post 1834, mm. are, um, yeah, quite extensive and it's just, yeah, we, we do have to have that um more, I guess, like, yeah, in that indigenous rhetoric, like, how do we look after the environment? Well, yeah, they didn't for so long. Mm, mm. So, the more you can incorporate, and we can incorporate that yeah. thinking yeah. as well as like just practical ways, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, what's our backyard mm. and how important is it to our culture?
1: Definitely.
2: It's an ongoing discussion. Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I just recently learnt about the Bajbim cultural landscape um, that has just recently been listed as a world heritage site on the UNESCO world heritage list and so that's located in the country of the Kudinchmara um, in the southeastern parts of Australia so it's you know a few hours west of Melbourne and essentially the Bajbim cultural landscape recognises um, one of the world's oldest aquaculture systems uh, so it's a, it's at least 6,600 years old and um, it's a series of lava flows that indigenous Australians would use to trap and harvest kuyang which is um, eel uh, for thousands of years and this is an example where you know Indigenous Australians have uh stewarded their their landscape, their ecosystem and had a thriving socio-economic system um come as a result of that. And I think there's a lot there's a lot that we can learn from that, but there's also a lot to um yeah, to celebrate that this has been recognised on a global scale and um this is something that we need more um that is just yeah that's amazing and so cool to hear um about yeah your perspective and yeah the perspective of um you know the non-governmental organizations in the international climate regime things that we personally struggle with like when we're thinking about all these issues day in day out um and I think it's just yeah it's always really important to um, think about a broad range of perspectives when we're talking about environmental issues in particular because, mm. as we said, like, it's all just so interconnected. interconnected. Yeah, across industry, across um, social groups, among, across countries, across oceans. Yeah,
2: yeah
1: yeah, 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 So, yeah, I think that'll be about it yeah. from us now. Yeah, yeah. great, cool. But... Um, thank you so much no, again thank you Craig. Yeah, no, that's awesome it's really cool um i i wish you the best of luck in tassie thank you i'll be keeping up to date um with your adventures so um if you'd like to also follow along at home um for jimmy's work in making tracks there'll be a link provided in the show notes uh, for today's episode and I'll also pop in a link for um, the Australian Marine Conservation Society with their okay. many campaigns um, that are always in need of support. So from the plastics campaign that we talked about um, to preserving shark populations, to developing sustainable fisheries, uh, there's sure to be a worthy cause of your interest and passion. So Thank you, Jimmy. That's. Great. And thanks for tuning in, guys.
2: G'day everyone, Jimmy here. I've taken a break from hiking just for a few moments. I've found a nice little bit of hill with hopefully a bit of protection from the wind. I'm on the Kepler track in Fiordland National Park on the south island of Aotearoa and New Zealand. And this is Ngai Tahu country, I believe, the Māori's. And it is spectacular. And um, why am I talking like this? Well, Cree has asked me to do a little bit of an update since we chatted in November and touching on a few of the things we chatted about. Um, I'm yeah sitting looking at this valley. And this is relevant to what I've chat about eventually, but it's a glacial carved valley, and it's this beautiful sort of U-shaped valley. So you can see where the bulk of the the weight of the glacier would have sat in the bottom, and then at the top of that sort of bowl you have these really gnarled, hummocky, uh, rocky areas, and it's a few waterfalls falling, but with a bit of rain, this is a bit waterfall heaven, and it's there's not a tree to be seen, and it's all this golden green sort of end of summer, sort of sun bleached tussock, and half of the valley is in the evening sunlight and the other half is in the evening shadow and it is divine it's a beautiful beautiful part of the world um, yeah it's been a pretty pretty hectic summer for those uh, for all of us and for you guys back home and, um, and yeah with the, the bushfires in it's always every single state, but the size of those fires is just was, is ridiculous, unprecedented. Um, yeah, never seen anything like it. And I've uh, been talking to a lot of people about those fires. And you meet folk from all over the world, and when they find out that you're born in Melbourne, for Australia, the first question they ask you after that is, is about the bushfires and then there's a string of questions and comments about about the situation and about the life lost and property lost and the area damaged by it and the impact on wildlife and ecosystems and then of course the queries and around the embarrassing response by our federal government and um, just the mess that it is, and uh yeah, some pretty pretty interesting conversations and comments from people from all over the world um I'll be blunt it's kind of embarrassing uh some other beautiful things about travelling and sharing sharing news from all around the world and where where everyone's at, you know. In the way we're all in the same basket we're all dealing with this global warming nonsense um, nonsense in that it's not something we should be dealing with it should just be dealt with um, but uh, everyone's dealing with it in different ways and Australia is just coming off as an embarrassment on an international scene that's blunt and honest um, so so yes uh, everywhere I've gone all the little towns I'm popping into there is fundraisers for for Australia and for and for their bushfire relief, it's it's everywhere, it's everyone's minds um, and then in here in New Zealand you have glaciers and I was lucky enough to be standing next to one yesterday, uh, yesterday a couple of days ago and it was gorgeous the dark glacier, it's quite a Quite a gnarly hike to get to it, and woke up in the morning, ice frozen over tent, and shoes were frozen, and made our way down to the glacier, and it was it's fantastic, a beautiful, beautiful place to be. Unfortunately, New Zealand's lost seventy percent of their glacier coverage in ten years or so. Um, so that's one of the obvious. Um, impacts of global warming here in New Zealand and one that a lot of the locals reflect on and talk about. Um, I've noticed that through hiking. I've noticed that on my maps, a lot of the maps I'm using have glaciers on them and yeah, I get there and there's nothing. You may hear in the background a kea, which is the world's only alpine parrot flying around me if it gets close enough. Very inquisitive, intelligent animals. Um, so, reflecting on the summer that has been um and what Karina and I were chatting about is the, stressing the importance of looking after ourselves and each other and it 's not a normal situation to live with the constant thought of the degradation of these natural beautiful natural places and the impact it 's having on people it's not it's not normal, so look after yourselves and always um, feel able to ask. For a conversation, for a chat, and for there's so many folk out there who are dealing with and talking about and, and feeling the same things. So do look after yourself and each other. Um, here it comes the Kia. Um, quickly on hiking, I'm walking the Te Roa Trail, which is uh, the National Trail of New Zealand, and it goes from the top of the North Island to the bottom of the South Island. It's three thousand kilometres. I'm hiking just the South Island. So I'm up to about 1,500 kilometers now, a couple more hundred k's to go, and I don't want to speak too soon because I still have to get a visa, but I have a permit to hike the Pacific Crest Trail in the United States, which is from Mexico to Canada, a casual 4,200 kilometers. It's a bit bigger than this one. So on the hiking side of things and the making track side of things uh trying to cram as much as i can into a year if you have any questions about hiking or about trails or you just want to check out some of the sweet scenery feel free to drop us a line hey um making is their website but at making now or at it's jimmy nails on instagram the main sort of spots hey and if uh, yeah, I couldn't couldn't recommend this trail in as here any more. It is fantastic. Sorry, I couldn't recommend it enough. Is probably what I meant to say. It's fantastic. It takes in a swathe of different sceneries, mostly mountainous, but um, a whole different level, different levels of experience of people on the trail, different nationalities from all over the world. Every night, pretty much, you end up in these one of these beautiful little huts. And you, you cook a nice little meal, get wrapped up in your sleeping bag, share a few stories, maybe have the old fire in the, in the, the fireplace. It's New Zealand and the South Island is set up. It's a hiking mecca. If not, I'm going to go out and say probably the hiking mecca of the world. Uh, so if you do enjoy tramping strolling around, um, this is the place to be. So yeah, feel free to drop us a line if you want any cues on that. Cree, i think i've rambled long enough uh thank you so much for having thank you so much for having a chat with me hey and um and yeah everyone look after yourselves i hope this was this chat this ramble of ours is helpful and any questions or comments or whatever yeah let us
0: know Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our possible where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times.
3: The Climactic Collective
0: This show is produced by Hear Media. A boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.